It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As a listener to this podcast, you might often fantasize about your ideal cabinet, who you'd have as prime minister, foreign secretary, chancellor or home secretary. But have you ever had that thought, but with beer? Thanks to our friends at Beer52, you can create your own cabinet of beers. You get a free case of eight craft beers, and all you have to do is cover the postage of £5.95. So go to beer52.com slash party. That's the word beer, the numbers five and two, dot com slash party. And get your free case of eight beers. And you can arrange them however you like. You can create a cabinet, or depending on your political leanings, a shadow cabinet, or just leave them in the cabinet. And of course, the joy of a Beer 52 monthly subscription is that you can have a reshuffle every month, which would still make it more stable than most of the governments we have in the UK. It comes with a magazine and a snack, and if you don't like dark beer, you can choose the light option. You can pause or cancel at any time. So if you want to bring some stability and you don't fancy a reshuffle, you can indeed lead by example. Go to beer52.com slash party and pay £5.95 postage to get all this now. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features Councillor Roundtree from Norfolk County Council, or as he's better known, Dave Roundtree, the drummer from Blur. Of course, there's so many things you want to ask someone who's been part of such a massive band, particularly for my generation, and all the Britpop stuff, particularly then someone who's gone into Labour politics because of the whole Cool Britannia and Britpop and all the Blair stuff as well. So getting his um, perspective on both sides of that is really interesting. And also just the reality of being a county councillor. Whatever his previous uh, employment as a rock and roll star... He is a councillor, and that involves doing the work of a councillor. And I do ask him this, obviously, but how surreal it must be if you're a Blur fan or a music fan and you live in Norfolk, and then one of the members of one of the biggest and most successful era-defining bands really since the 60s knocks on your door and asks asks you to uh, elect him. So there's some great stories in here, including... um, it's not just, by the way, I had two careers, also a legal career, which we, we get some insight into, um, but also why the best day of his life wasn't headlining Glastonbury, wasn't beating Oasis to number one, but interviewing Gordon Brown <laughs> in number 10. Um, an interview, which you can see on YouTube, uh, should you wish to Google it. Um, so there's so much I talked to Dave about. It's brilliant. And it's, anyway, aside from the fact he's a rock and roll star, that interesting journey from teenage radical to elected politician and um, how life shapes and changes perhaps your political uh, beliefs and approach is really interesting. But I began by asking Dave, he got elected in 2017, but he said that he's standing down in the next round of county council elections. Why he was standing down after just one term? Oh, for one reason or another, I had to uh, I had to split my life in two and uh, and uh, have a Norfolk life and a and a London life. 
and it just proved untenable in these kind of weird COVID times. Traveling and staying in two homes suddenly became illegal, and uh, so uh, I just thought I'd better stand down. And uh, and uh, it's a shame because I've really enjoyed it, and it it's a it's a small ward, you know. I mean. It, People are baffled as to why I did that. You know, <laughs> well, we're really going to come bad. to that, yeah. But honestly, it's such a great thing to do. And, uh, you know, people, having seen that, having seen the uh, the viral parish council meeting that's currently doing the rounds, <laughs> if you can cope with that, I mean, that's a normal Labour Party meeting, really. All my mates the Labour Party going, yeah, well, that's about 50% of the the Labour Party meetings I've ever been to <laughs> have been like that. Finally, you deal with that and have a, have a, a sort of Jackie Weaver-esque smile on your face by the end of it. It's fine. And the, the upside of having to deal with those kinds of meetings is you get to um, meet people and one-on-one -on -one try and make a difference in their lives, you know. And that's what I found my membership of the Labour Party has given me the license to knock on people's doors and say I, have to, I just live around the corner you're all right everything okay anything i can do to help and that's such a a, a life-affirming thing to do and it's something we're missing it's something i was missing in my life you know being a being a pop star of sorts and kind of you know you don't get that you don't get that sense of one-on-one -on -one doing good in people's lives and you know i think music does do that music is one of the things that's helped me the most you know with my mental health during these covid times but with you know even without that it's kind of seen me through seen me through life and seen me through the good times and the bad but you don't get a sense of that as a musician especially the more successful you are where every, every, the audience are all held at a distance and you don't get to see the good you're doing you know and i found as I approached middle age, that was a real that was a real problem for me. So that was when I threw myself into into my. You know, I'd never even turned up to a Labour Party meeting. You know, I just paid the subs and gone. Somebody needs to do something. Why isn't somebody doing something? You know, <laughs> oh, oh uh, that somebody perhaps might be me. You know, <laughs> I threw my when I when I discovered the the power of knocking on doors and saying, "Are you all right? Anything to do to help?" I discovered that's what I've been missing from my life. So there's no way I'm going to stop doing that. And it is a shame because University Ward, where I'm the councillor, it's a small ward. I know people there. I've been knocking on the doors, same doors for years. People know me. I know them. You know, and that's a, that sense of community is really lovely. And you, you don't get that in the big city. You only get that outside London. <laughs> well, it's so true that you mentioned knocking on doors, but also Hanford Parish Council, because anyone who's been in, anyone who's been to even one Labour Party meeting or local council meeting, let alone the amount you'll have gone to and the amount I've gone to, that took me immediately back to being a Labour Party member. And it's a part of British life that actually so few people have ever seen before. And I think for those of us involved in politics, seeing it kind of go viral was deeply satisfying because you try and tell friends what it's like. You go, I was at this Labour Party meeting and it went mad. People were screaming at each other. People just don't, people can't quite visualise it. And yet yeah. that Zoom video, that clip of Jackie Weaver and the others has, has really, it's now a piece of, it's a form of reference for, for people who haven't had their lives in politics that you and I have had to understand it. I mean, 
was Norfolk County Council? Obviously, it's a it's a bigger deal than a parish council. It's got bigger powers. Have you sat in meetings like the one that that went viral last week? Oh yeah, I mean it's easy it's easy for tempers to fray. I mean the 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 county council meetings kind of happen in public, so to some extent, you know, you it's it's more like uh, what happens in court where you know you can be extremely rude, but you have to do it in quite a polite way. Not <laughs> <laughs> to it, and actually the the the. The most powerful way of mocking your opponents is by making everybody laugh. I've discovered, you know, if you can make crack jokes at their expense, preferably, uh, preferably, you know, at your own expense as well. But you know, that's the that's the the best way of doing it. But um, yeah, that, I mean, it's a shame. You know, my my um, introduction to the Labour Party was, you know, to, to meetings was when I um, I turned up to my first meeting and they made me chair of the branch that was the only person in the meeting hadn't been chair <laughs> so were there many people at that branch meeting was it quorum the five people oh man I mean, was it quorum that's such a brilliant <laughs> question that only somebody <laughs> only somebody who spent their life in labor party meetings wouldn't even think to answer because the, the actual answer is who cares we're not making any decisions you know <laughs> who cares whether it's quorum but I so I having having you know chaired a bunch of meetings that went like that. It, it occurred to me that that's why there are only five people in this meeting. You know, people would come. You know, I, I arranged the first thing I did was I arranged because I I lived in central London in the uh, in the uh, cities of London and Westminster, which is the the most glamorous constituency in the country, though nobody's ever heard of it because it's got Buckingham Palace in, it's got Number Ten in, you know, its Parliament is in cities of London, Westminster, you know, but it's obviously the one of the safest Tory seats in the country. But uh, very easy to get high-profile speakers to come and speak at your branch meeting. You know, MPs love to speak at branch meetings and give them kudos, gives them brownie points, but they don't have to travel to do it. You know, I could just get them a taxi. They could come to my branch meetings. I arranged this string of high-profile MPs to come and give us talks, which was great. And, you know, attracted the branch members. And the branch members would turn up once, listen to the MPs talk, and then the meeting would descend into chaos and shouting and throwing chairs, and they would never come back again. And I, I had to always say, that's a real shame, because, a you know, a, the, a branch meeting should be a club, a fun club, for people who are interested in politics, I think they would be great. Loads of people could come because actually loads of people are interested in politics. You know, it shouldn't be the, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. It should be a fun thing to do. You know, people should look forward to it on a Thursday night or whatever, you know, and, uh, but, but they're not. And it, I think it's such a shame. And the, and the you know is it even quarrel? Is is a symptom of that really, isn't it? <laughs> well, I wasn't trying to overturn your election retrospectively, but it's the sort of thing. Only five members being there, I'm not sure you were you were you have any democratic rights have been described as the chair of the branch. So the, the read the standing orders, read them and understand them. But the reality is, I mean, all these all these party units, branches, and constituencies, and you know. Labour branches, they all have a role to play, but once or twice a year, you know, when selections happen, when there's a leadership or deputy leadership election or something like that, then you have an actual constitutional role to play in the life of the United Kingdom. Other than that, it should just be a fun club for, f 
for politics nerds like us where we could turn up and you know do fun things to do with politics and you know <laughs> Well, that's it. I I went to my first meeting at 15 thinking it was going to be talking about the NHS and schools. And it was just a debate about where a set of bollards were situated and it was any other business, correspondence. It was just, I didn't know that sort of side of the world existed in politics. So when you go to your first branch meeting, a bit older than 15, you're a bit more experienced, but you, you leave the meeting as chair i mean did you try and resist or did you think well actually i'm here i might as well give it a go i thought i I thought my rise to power had begun (laughs) (laughs) because all these all these posts of course it turns out have only responsibilities and no power no power whatsoever you know yeah only duties and absolutely no power (laughs) nobody wants to do them so you joined in 2002 which Seems a bit late, is that right? I'd read that somewhere that you joined in 2002. I have no idea. But to have been around in the 90s when New Labour's all kicking off and there's the association with popular culture, people might have presumed that you'd have joined in 94 or 97. Well, it was all part of the growing up process for me, really. You know, I... And I'm sure I'm not alone in the country here in, in you know, sitting back on the sofa or having, you know, in those days, sitting back on the sofa while the news was on going, that's ridiculous. Why doesn't somebody do something? And that was my, you know, that was my rallying cry. That was my kind of political debate in the pub. Somebody needs to do something about this. Why is nobody doing anything? <laughs> but I guess there's quite a leap, quite a mental leap from that to... I need to do something, which most people I think don't take. Yes. Really. And I, 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 I don't know why I took it. I think, you know, I can only put it down to some kind of midlife crisis or something. <laughs> it was either that or a leather jacket and a motorbike. And a red sports car. <laughs> it still sounds quite attractive. Um, so well, red's, red's the colour of socialism. There's a, there's a link. Red Ferraris are the colour of socialism. <laughs> Keep the red car driving here. So, but uh, it's funny. I mean, much of I mean, much of what you do as a local politician is, by its very nature, quite dull. And I'm sure, actually, much of what MPs do is the same. You know, and every meeting in the Labour Party on any topic of any party unit anywhere starts with reading the minutes of the last meeting. Any idea why we do that? Can we prove the minutes of the last meeting? What? We didn't take any decisions at the last meeting. Why have we even minuted the meeting? And who? What? what party unit hasn't ever discussed putting the minutes up on a website so that people could read them? What <coughs> what kind of person would read the minutes of the Cities of London Westminster branch meeting <laughs> on the website? You imagine the, this kind of this this great mass of people sitting there just you know just desperate to learn. <laughs> Darling, <laughs> stop everything! Stop. The minutes are out. Turn the telly off. <laughs> Put your phone on silent. <laughs> Gather around, gather around. Let's read the minutes. Come on. 
<laughs> sort of leather bound version of them for Christmas, like the Viz annual. <laughs> um, but anyway, it's been quite a journey, I have to say. It's been quite a journey, and that the 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 fun bit of it is 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 the elections, of course. Whether you're standing or not, that's the fun bit because uh, there's nothing. It, apart from the last election, there's nothing that unifies the party like an election. <laughs> the last election, there's nothing that divided a party like the election. <laughs> anyway, we'll gloss over that. Um, but yeah, that's a lot of, they can be a lot of fun. And, you know, you there's a great sense of camaraderie, especially on uh, election night itself. You know, you, you take the day off work or whatever and the day or two two days before the election it's just absolute chaos charging around the ward or the constituency or whatever and firefighting and it's all kind of crazy and there's a there's a sitcom in that i'm sure oh i've no doubt there is yeah yeah um, I, i'm just just wondering what those kind of moments are that nudge you that, that get you over the line from being in the pub saying someone needs to do something about this to actually joining the labor party and think about the time in which you did it where it's Tony Blair's prime minister by two, by the time you joined, maybe early 2000s, it's still, you know, it's pre Iraq, maybe uh, labor is still quite popular. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, it's, it's often a major football tournament that gets someone into football or it's seeing a band at Glastonbury that makes them want to pick up a guitar. What are there particular moments you can remember where you go, actually, this is, I am going to cross that line. Was it a conversation with someone? Was it meeting an MP or, or seeing a speech? I don't know. I don't know what most phases me to actually actually join, and I don't know what year I actually joined. It just it that just sort of happened quite organically. I think I was living in uh, I was living in uh, Hampstead. Hampstead was a was and still is a, a Labour seat, and uh, my a couple of next doors neighbour, a couple of doors down, was a Labour activist, and he was sort of nagging me, and I think I joined to placate him. <laughs> so that was it. You basically were sort of nagged into joining. I think that was. I, I think that was before two thousand and two. I think maybe two thousand and two was when I first started turning up. But I don't know. I don't really remember. I don't really remember. I have to look at the minutes to check. I'm sure I saw they're on a website somewhere. And were you? What sort of Labour person were you? Did you come to it? Did you ever have a sort of teenage radical phase? Had you ever been in the Socialist oh, yeah. Worker Party oh, or anything? Yeah. I mean, I you know. I'd never actually joined anything, but yes, I was a I was a young Marxist. You know, I'm not the only not the only young Marxist to have moderated slightly <laughs> over the years. <laughs> but yes, I was very angry with the world, and uh, and uh, also I discovered the the ability of Marxism to really annoy adults. <laughs> I I've learned my Marx at school. I learned just enough to what to do what I thought was winning arguments you know because there's 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 enough in it to uh to to sound correct you know to sound like a kind of show-stopping yeah but what you don't understand is you know you don't need to know that much luckily to to be able to be that asshole. <laughs> you know what I mean so and I didn't know very much so but uh yeah and I Yes, it, it was, uh, but it, it uh, yeah, so I, I was, I was, you know, I was dem I'm going out on demos and signing petitions and all of that kind of stuff. So I was an activist first, really, before I was a member. 
but um, I don't know that I was terribly. I mean, I'll tell you what. My my actual my actual political awakening happened long, long before then, and it it, uh, it, it I've, I've been thinking a lot about this recently because it's the kind of I'm making some music, and it's sort of about this part of my life. Um, the, the 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 kind of inspiration for the music I'm making. It was when I was a, a, a very small kid. I uh, I had a radio cassette player on the on my bedside table, and I would lie awake at night. Um, it had kind of long wave and medium wave on it, and I would lie awake at night, flicking through the the stations. And I stumbled across Radio Moscow, and they used to do a English language service. This is back in the back in the real communist days. And my parents um, were both kind of, you know, centrist conservatives, I guess. You know, neither of them were were, were wildly political, but you know, we had we got the Telegraph and the Mail. You know, which is the standard Colchester duo i don't think they had sold any other papers in colchester as far as i'm aware so uh and you know my dad worked with the bbc so we didn't listen to itv we listened to bbc we watched the bbc there were only two channels there may be some others on the dial but uh, they're not available to us so i had a very uh, a very kind of uh, narrow range of interpretations of world events piped at me through these media, you know, and uh, then I discovered Radio Moscow, and they they were uh, they they had an English language service, and uh, it gave a radically different interpretation of the world events. And it never really occurred to me. I was just a kid. It never really occurred to me that there was another view. It, this clearly it was clearly berserk, you know. There was there was <laughs> it was. It was an irrational point of view, and it, it was it was clearly, you know, it was clearly biased. But that that occurred to me then. The other point of view I had was equally clearly biased, and that was my political awakening. You know, stumbling across Radio Moscow and thinking, oh, so there actually is a whole different way of interpreting these things that are going on in the world. You don't. You know, the fact that it says it on the BBC and it says it in the mail doesn't necessarily mean it's true. That's interesting. <laughs> it was basically the radio equivalent of Russia Today. <laughs> yes, you were radicalised by radio fake news. And I didn't become a Marxist then. I just became a Marxist when I, you know, really over, over a cup of tea one night speaking to a friend who uh, then explained Marxism to me. And I thought, yeah, that sounds... That sounds like it can really piss people off. <laughs> <laughs> so what about your parents? Are they pissed off? Oh, yeah. They're still pissed off to this day. <laughs> they can't believe I'm not a conservative counsellor. <laughs> how, how did it feel to you then, seeing Jeremy Corbyn become leader of the Labour Party, having that history of Marxism and, and, and understanding that world perhaps better than most, and then seeing someone from that world lead a mainstream political party in the UK? Well, it, while all that was going on, all I could think was, yep, if I was 20, that would be me too. I'd be there. You know, it's only because I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been there and done that already that uh, I'm not going there and doing that now. And I did, I joined Momentum when it all first started. I don't know if you did. I thought, I thought it was no. quite exciting. <laughs> I thought, 
Christ, this guy, there's all these young people that are gagging to turn up to Labour Party meetings and deliver leaflets. Right, brilliant, we'll have some of that. <laughs> but um, it was it was quite inspiring at the start. I thought, oh, this, you know, if this works, it could be amazing. Because he's so not... you quite open to it then at the start. You weren't sort of a, 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 a cynical centrist about the rise of Corbyn. I. I'm I honestly I I have I have a touching faith in the ability of the party <laughs> to uh select somebody that will take us on to the next phase. <laughs> it's just about whether the next phase is better or worse. I have the that much touching faith now in the ability of the party to select somebody that will win us a general election. <laughs> and it has it has uh, occurred to me somewhere along the way that that really is the only job of the leader of the party, actually, because you, you don't, you can, all the other stuff, you can buy in. You can buy in policy, you can buy in comms, you can buy in structure, you know, you can get expertise in to develop that kind of stuff. But you've, the people that, the people that win elections are the people at, it has to be. It pains me to even say it, but actually, you need a you need the charisma thing. You need you need the ability to look down the camera lens at people and go, "Look, I know what I'm doing. Follow me. I'm in charge. We're going this way." You know, and that not many people have that skill. Blair had it. Cameron had it. Thatcher had it. You know. All these people had it. You just, whether you agree with them or you disagree with them, you know, they you could they could sit down one on one in an interview with somebody and can speak convincingly in a way that you thought, oh well, yeah, no, you may be right then. Okay, well, let's give it a go. You know, does Keir Starmer have it? I think the jury's out on that. He doesn't have it today. And I'm not sure whether if you don't have it at the start, it ever develops. I, I have not seen that. I've lived in hope with many a leader. And the, the odd thing was, Ed Miliband had it until he became leader. And then he thought, well, I better be all leaderly. I mean, if you'd seen him, I'm sure you have, seen him give speeches to constituencies and kind of, you know, he was like, a, he was like the best speaker in the PLP at the time. You know, people constituencies were queuing up to have him turn up and and do talks and give presentations on things. And he was funny and he was interesting and he was charismatic. And you know, you came away thinking, Ed, what are you, Jesus, why isn't he in charge? <laughs> then Ed was in charge, and just suddenly he turned into this sort of weird, weird kind of I don't know what. Just it all seemed to go slightly wrong for him. He 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 couldn't. He could no longer relax. Everything was on edge the whole time, picking fights with everyone rather than you know, which he was very bad at doing. I mean, he was terrible. I mean, do you remember his first his first rant at Cameron, where he was going, "Son of Thatcher, son of Thatcher." <laughs> hands up in the cabinet. Come on, hands up. Who's going to benefit from the tax cut? Come on. <laughs> Nod your head if you're going to benefit, Mr. Speaker. Come on. <laughs> and of course, Cameron just made fun of him, which is exactly the right thing to do. <laughs> yeah, Cameron, I saw um, 
I tried. <laughs> have you ever been to P- PMQs and seen it live? Oh, I never have. I'd like to. Oh, it's f- it is a phenomenal thing. I got, I'm very lucky that I got to see Blair versus Hague a few times, and that, that feels like the, the last golden era, really. But Cameron Miliband was really good. Cameron was so good at it. He was really good at it. Particularly as a lot of his own side didn't like him particularly much. So there was always that tension there. Yeah, I remember. I mean, he was, he was on the verge of being given the boot at the start. And I was, I was um, talking to a journalist um during the Cameron years who said she had at the start of Cameron's uh, tenure as leader of the party not as prime minister she she followed him around for a couple of months to write a book and she said he was just absolutely hopeless it was gaff after gaff after gaff <laughs> useless but he did yeah because he came, I guess he came from a PR background and he he's he, as, as I remember, didn't used to run a PR company or work as a PR. He worked company. for Carlton Comms, yeah. And so he had, he just had that kind of ability to, to look, say, look, I know, I know, it's a ridiculous situation. I wouldn't have, but you know, we've just got to do this, you know. And people would just, you know, he, he could convince you of the rightness of his argument, or even if not convince you of the rightness of his argument, he would put you at your ease. You see, no. quite a gentle way about it. No, no, I, I don't think that the country agrees. I, I think we need to pull together. And there was a kind of, I think the sound of his voice, you know, I mean, so much of politics is is accent and presentation. You have to have the politics right, I think. Without that, then I think you're doomed. But you, that is the icing on the cake. That's when it gets you over the line. And it is easier for Conservatives in the UK than it is for Labour leaders. Not as if one person comes up with all of that, you know. I mean, like in the Labour Party, we have a... A, a policy process often ignored by the leader but you know if you want policy we got policy it's not like you have to have all the answers like what every one person has to have all the answers yes you know they can set the direction if they set the direction and then they can buy in expertise to fill in all the blanks you know it's not like every prime minister has to be an expert economist you know and an expert in architecture and an expert in farming you know you can to assemble a team, yes. <laughs> but if you don't, so you, you know, even if all you have is kind of a, some aspirations and a, and a general sense of direction, I think that's enough. That will do. It's not ideal, and the, the, the most the most uh, successful leaders had a lot more than that. But without that charisma thing, you're absolutely stuffed. I think. And how does that apply at a local level then? Because it, it still applies to MPs to, to getting selected. It's a different type of. Um, test but still those you have to be able to convince people you have to be quite impressive people want to local members want to follow you into battle and, and get behind you at an election so how have you found the burden of that sort of judgment D- did you become more charismatic did you did you have to change the way that you tried to convince people or spoke to the public yeah i had to learn how to how to do the speeches thing which is something we don't we don't learn outside the public schools here which is why the public school people people have such a huge advantage in politics i think you know they they learn the art of rhetoric from quite an early age and they're i mean i'm making an enormous generalization no eye-wateringly ridiculous generalization but still i think it is true yes and it gives them a level of confidence that perhaps those of us who went state school leaders a bit awkwardly yes absolutely and it, you know, even in America, you the, you have uh, school kids doing show and tell, standing up in front of the class on a regular basis, to so that 
you know they're not to, they they leave school not cringing at the idea of making a, a, a speech at a wedding you know which we do here oh god you know we're, we lie awake at night for six months before you know. is there a yeah, specific no. wedding you've got in mind is that is you getting flashbacks we see i'm fine with it now i've done so many speeches that i've had that beaten out of me you know so i'm fine so like I remember the very early days of the band, I had the standard English cringe of having my photo taken yeah. you know, a month in. I'm like, oh, bring it on. But of course, kids today don't have that because they take each other's pictures routinely. So they probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, certainly the, the, the giving speeches thing is something you can learn, giving and writing speeches, it's something you can learn to do. There are tricks, there are techniques. It's like learning a musical instrument. You can have lessons and get good at it. You know, but uh, but outside the public school system, nobody does. So everybody's like in at the deep end, really, uh, as as I was, you know, and God knows what it was like to be in the audience. At some of my early speeches, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I met a couple of speechwriters along the way who uh, who helped me a lot, gave, told me what books to read and uh, read some of my speeches and critiqued them. Okay, well, for, for any budding politicians, then, what is the book people should read? Well, it'd be great if I had that information to hand. Because <laughs> <laughs> then this this uh, this podcast would be both informative and entertaining. But we'll have to settle for just entertaining. Yeah, just Google it. Just Google. <laughs> have all the answers. There are there. there I'll I'll let you know. If you want to just go back and edit this podcast and insert the answer later on, then to, to do that or uh, just do it in like a dubbed over way. The art of speech making <laughs> by Jonathan Speechley. <laughs> but yeah, I mean there are some standard textbooks, and as I say, it's something it's something you can learn to do. You can you can uh, practice it. You can it takes it takes effort. And it, it takes 90% of giving a good speech is confidence and being relaxed. And the way, the way you are confident and relaxed is by knowing the speech, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and I found that helped me in so many other ways as well. I mean, I, I, um, I never used to be particularly good on the TV. I was always very kind of uh, uptight and nervous about it. And even, you know, on being interviewed on Radio One and that kind of thing, you know, where you just know there's 10 million people listening, I would just be very, very nervous. And uh, and the way around that is to go in with something to say, you know, having prepared something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a funny anecdote or uh, you know the, the 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 truth behind your current single or whatever the hell it is. And uh, the the reality is, I discovered having somebody told me this you know and I didn't come up with this but uh, once you do that you realize they don't actually care what you say you know they may ask so what what's uh, what's new in the world of blur they don't care about the answer they want something interesting and engaging that fills up the three minutes that's allocated to you they don't care if you don't answer that question at all they don't care if you don't answer any questions you could just turn up and say your thing you know so what's new in the world of blur today Oh, I don't know, but I'll tell you, the funny thing happens to be on the way here. It's perfectly acceptable. But that's I mean, a really good lesson for the political interview about reframing your answer and saying what you want to say, not what you're asked. Yeah, but it's different It's different in a political interview um, if against a good journalist who asks a direct question, which uh, which is not a given. 
but uh, saying, <laughs> then say, well, I don't know about that. But all I do know is you just look, you know, the, people, the public are aware of that trick now and they, they know that that's making, you know, you're, you're saying that because you don't want to answer the question. But in an arts-based interview, nobody cares, honestly. They have 1,500 words to write and they don't care really what those words are, but they just want it to be interesting and engaging. And if you turn up with something interesting to say, brilliant, they would ask you, you know, they'll ask you the what's the words to blur today question. They'll ask you a single other question. If you'll just say 1500 interesting words to them, they will write them down and send them in as their copy. <laughs> did, did you talk about politics as a band? I mean, I remember seeing the film Live Forever, that great rockumentary about the rise of effectively new labor and all the music that was going on at the time and damon albarn was on there saying that he, he his antenna sort of tweaked a bit about the whole cool britannia thing and the party at number 10 and he despite um being of that persuasion seemed a bit cynical about going to the party and not wanting to go i mean was that something you were discussing as a band no not really it it i know damon damon got an invite but it was all a as I understand it, and I'm sure he'll tell the story better, but I think it was all rather heavy handed. I think uh, while Blair probably wanted to be inclusive and be everybody's friend, the people around him were rather more heavy handed with, the, you know, the, uh, it was more of a summons than, a, than an invitation. And I don't think <laughs> that doesn't that play particularly well with Damon. Yeah. So uh, I think he told to F off and uh, that was that really. But yeah, we we had a chat about that, and my nervousness was that's rather that's a powerful enemy to make. I said, you know, we don't want to. It would be a, it would be a mistake to to be too heavy-handed in 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 replying to that. So I think he said something funny instead, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than going in with both boots. <laughs> so <coughs> I think it was all fine. But you, you know, we it's interesting. Everyone imagines that we, because there's this, there's this kind of um, historical narrative about the times now, those times, and it's uh, it's it's got the heading Britpop at the top, and everyone imagines that we were a part of that, and so, um, but we really at the time we weren't. We we may have unwisely started it but then we kind of lost interest in it. And we were doing, by the time everybody else was doing Britpop, we was kind of doing something else. You know, we were more influenced by American music than, than uh, anything else at that time. So the Britpop was really Oasis and the Spice Girls, you know, and <laughs> so we were sort of, a, by the time that was a thing, we were sort of on the periphery of it anyway. Um, and we've never really enjoyed doing the same thing twice anyway. So there's no way we would have carried on making those kind of albums over and over on the same topics over and over. So, I mean, we, we certainly weren't invited as a band. I think Damon was invited. And yeah, his, he, his, right away he thought, hang on, that's, there's something not entirely, uh, entirely about the music going on here. <laughs> <laughs> So when you joined the party, did did you ever meet Blair or, or, or senior Labour figures? And they're like, oh, you're the drummer from Blair. Why didn't you come to the party? No, but I'd, I'd met Blair and I met, you know, I'd, I'd, at that time I, I was kind of, I, I knew lots of senior Labour figures. I don't know so many anymore. 
but and I was kind of hanging around Parliament, you know, and I was I loved it there. I still do. It's such an exciting place. Yeah. Um. And of course, Blair voted for me, so I, you know, <laughs> that was, when I did meet him, I said, "Oh, Tony, you voted for me, didn't you?" <laughs> he had no idea who I was. <laughs> Because <laughs> he was into his music, wasn't he? So I thought he might have recognised you. Was he? But was as a youth, he? you know, he was a he was a he was in a Rolling Stone. He did a Mick Jagger impression. He was in a band. You know, people sort of yeah, keep that interest a bit, don't they? I don't think he was a. I don't think he was a music nerd. And I don't think he. You know, he didn't even know the name of his favourite band, did he? And when he called them Wheeler Eighteen rather than Eighteen Wheeler. <laughs> But that's what the real fans called them, right? That was uh, that was an in joke amongst the eighteen in the community. Yeah, was, yeah. Um, and it was it was interesting that you know on the that was the interview he gave to Smash Hits or whoever, wasn't it? And when he did uh, when he did Desert Island Discs, it was all you know Mazorski's pictures and exhibition, and you know the, the entirely different catalogue, entirely different canon that he picked from. Yeah, Dolgio for Strings, I think, was on Desert Island Discs on the list. Keir Starmer was on recently. He, you know, really? It's a fairly eclectic mix. I don't think he picked a Blur song, but it's not beyond the realms that Starmer would be a Blur fan, is it? Generationally, it's about right. How old is he? Is he my age? Like early 50s? I'm not saying I'm early 50s, but is he early <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think he's early 50s. Yeah, he may be. He's probably an Oasis fan, isn't he? Would that be a problem? <laughs> I don't know. They don't know. They don't. When was the last political leader that you actually were convinced had some interest in pop music? Well, David Cameron liked the Smiths, didn't he? And Johnny Marr didn't take very kindly to that. I think Brown was genuinely into music, wasn't he? Probably yeah, David Brown Cameron. I was. Yeah, actually. And I liked Gordon, actually. It has to be said. I liked him. He you interviewed a, him on the Downing Street YouTube channel. Yeah, about I, the creative industry strategy. Yeah, so that that was that was really the best day of my life. I I was uh, I just become a solicitor, and I I was uh, or oh, I just started training solicitor. Anyway, it was my first big trial, and it was at the Old Bailey. It was a five-handed murder trial, and uh, my client. I was a, I was a junior lawyer. I wasn't actually in charge of the case. I was a junior lawyer on the case, but my client was a uh, was the getaway driver, and uh, it was the uh, I didn't fact I have no idea what actually happened that night. But the prosecution said it was a it was a uh, it was a, a hitman hired to kill a police officer, and uh, there were five people charged. As I say, mine was my client was the getaway driver. It was the first day of this case in the court number one at the Old Bailey, which is, it's, it's like Parliament for, for law nerds. Yeah, it's Wembley. On the same day as that, I got this phone call saying, Gordon would like you to come and interview him on the, at number 10. And number 10, I'm sure you've been to number 10 many a time. It's a funny place, isn't it, as it turns out. It's yeah. not, not the bloody West Wing, is it? No, it's not at all. It's tiny. Like a kind of seaside dilapidated seaside resort in Eastbourne yeah. <laughs> it's like the the hotel triumphant in Eastbourne <laughs> the sweeping staircase with all the prime ministers on ain't a sweeping staircase at all it's like the back stairs that you know the servants used to go up yeah and uh, but anyway once you're in 
you're not supervised you just wander around hello i'm david Trimble. so anyway they they sent me these questions to ask gordon and uh, they were the most stultifyingly wooden questions you could imagine you know it's like uh, what uh, so what uh, what is uh, labor's vision for the creative industries in the next 10 years you know or so, something utterly dull they had three questions they wanted me to ask him and of course gordon was a great memorizer he memorized long worthy answers to these questions you know well david what do you think is <laughs> the creative so, industries are very important to all we do yes on, like that. on he witted into the night so i thought well i'll ask two questions and i'll throw my own question in at the end and so, so I asked my, oh, Gordon, what's it, what are these Labour's vision? He gave me the answer. No, how do you see the, uh, the, the industry developing as an as a, as a, as a export currency earner? Oh, well, David. <laughs> then I thought, right, I'll ask my own question. So I said, so, Gordon, um, I think, why? <laughs> <laughs> it's already gone. <laughs> no, I said something Gordon, like, "Why did you get rid of Tony Blair?" <laughs> <laughs> so, looking back, I said over the last twenty years, and uh, I said something like, "God, I wish I could even remember the question now I'd answer." But anyway, something like looking back at the last twenty years, and it was clear then I this wasn't the question number three on the sheet, and Gordon's minders looked up from their sheets, startled because I was going off piste. <laughs> and I said something that made him, made him think I was going to ask about the, the Blair and all of, all of that. And in fact, I said, Gordon, which did you buy, Blair or Oasis? <laughs> what did he say? After he said, ha, 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 David, I bought Blur and Oasis. <laughs> the minders, you should have seen the, 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 the fury on their faces that I'd uh, that I'd done something I'd done something off script and unasked and then but it you know Gordon laughed and it suddenly lightened the mood if I could remember the joke you'd see why it lightened the mood so I actually it was a joke it's a classic joke I just can't remember it and uh, but anyway they they cut that from the final thing and they only showed the two dull, worthy questions with the dull, worthy answers. And so it had, of course, no impact at all. And did you but, chat to him outside of just the bit that was filmed before and after? Did you have much conversation with him? No, no, he was straight in, whisked straight in, you know, very professionally did the thing and whisked straight out again. And I met him a few times, but it was all like that. I met him on the campaign trail. In, he visited one of the schools in my constituency and... So I had to, I gave a speech at the start. He was like half an hour late. Gore was always half an hour late for everything. At least. He was half an hour That's late. That's an early arrival. So they said, hey, hey, get up, get up, get up, make a speech, make a speech. So I told, told this long and involved anecdote about uh, <laughs> the time, a, blur, a blur time when we were in, uh, we were in Sweden and uh, woke up to the, ho the hotel being on fire. And uh, I've got this long story I can tell that it's as long as you like, really. 
<laughs> and it's full of good jokes and uh, things. And I had the, it, was, it was all journalists there, and I had, the, had them eating out of the palm of my hand by the end of it. I had them rolling around on the floor. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then then Gordon came up, and uh, it was funny because he he the the. Uh, about an, an hour before, maybe a couple of hours before that morning, I had a phone call from somebody saying, oh, just checking you're all right. Um, still okay for today. You know, Gordon's going to be turning up at blah, 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 blah. You, you're okay to be there. Yeah, yeah, fine. Have you ever met Gordon before? Yeah, yeah I interviewed him actually at number 10 once. Oh, yeah, great. Well, you'll be fine then. So then Gordon turned up. I introduced And ladies and gentlemen, Gordon Brown. He walks up on stage, shakes me by my hand. Oh, David. Ah, yes. Nice to see you again. I remember you interviewed me at number 10. In the... <laughs> that's right, Gordon. I did. But ever, that's the professional thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the polite thing to do, because it, it's far better to be left wondering whether he actually genuinely remembered or not than thinking, oh, we didn't mention it. <laughs> Given the two options, that's the best option. Yes, oh, I agree. And that that, that was a a note to me actually because you know the reality is gordon meets a thousand people every day and he's not going to remember them all but everyone who meets gordon is going to remember it if they're of my persuasion and uh, the same is true with my blur life you know i have to remember that a blur fan if they meet me is it's gonna be a, they're gonna remember it but you know on tour i might meet 200 people a day i'm unlikely to remember them so i always do try and uh you know, I don't, I never say nice to meet you. So I always say nice to see you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, That's no. a good politician's trick. We met before, haven't we? I, rem I remember you. Yeah. I remember a politician doing that to me once at a garden party. I was like, no, we've never met before. <laughs> I said, no, we have, we have. And I was like, oh shit. And it was only, I realized then I was being rude. I was like, no, we've not met before. And I thought, oh, the poor sod, you know, he does that because he meets so many people. Yeah. I so out of that, did you? Yeah, maybe we have. I said, no, yeah, I think we did. I was, did but you? I was the one going, no, I'd remember. And I wasn't trying to be a dick. I was just like, because I was like, oh, God. And then it was only, you go, oh, fuck, he's trying to be nice. And I've, I've ruined his little trick. <laughs> oh, man. I feel terrible yeah, now in the retelling. Far, and I have done that. Yeah. Thinking, you know, somebody was, you know, the, editor of a paper or something, somebody where I think, I don't remember meeting them, but I must have done surely at some point over the year. And then I've said, we've met though, haven't we? No, we haven't. No, I think, I'm surely sure we have. No, we definitely haven't. I totally understand why um, going to number 10 would be the best day of your life because yeah. the times I've been, it, I, I still remember it in HD. It's just an incredible place to go. But... I haven't headlined Glastonbury. I didn't win the Battle of Britpop with Country House. You know, how are they not bigger than going to number 10 for five minutes? I know. It's odd, isn't it? I suppose because I do them I do them day in, day out, really. That's that's my life, you know. So and I've I've headlined Glastonbury on a number of occasions. I don't want to boast, but uh, <laughs> I think it's three. So uh before so but that's you know that's that's my life it's the playing the drums and uh and the, the the 
you know, the first you remember the first times don't you i mean i the, the a similar a similar level of wow was when we played our first big gig which was um we we put on a little mini festival in uh, east london in the very early days of the band and got all our mates to support us you know so we had the cardiacs and uh, loads of other people and you know we were playing to I don't know, maybe 10,000 people or something or 5,000 people. So way in excess of the kind of 300 people we'd playing up, you know, maximum we'd playing up until that point. And we just, it was a real kind of, wow, this is what it's like. This is what it's like to be in a band, you know. This is what it's like to be at the next stage. Yeah. And the, I, I remember, same, you were saying, remember in HD, I remember that gig in HD from start to end i remember the party afterwards i remember at every little minute detail i watched all the other bands you know i remember what the audience looked like i remember what the stage looked like you know the the i would the, the same isn't true of the last time i headlined glastonbury you know <laughs> i probably got... remember it better than you did in 2009 it was fantastic yeah no, these are great things to do but you know you remember the first time you do these things don't you and you know, had I gone on to have a string of trials at the Old Bailey, I'd have probably, <laughs> hopefully, not as the accused. <laughs> <coughs> you know, that would probably have been become routine as well. But there was something in there's something about being involved in in one of those trials. You know, there was it was it was like being a part of the most extraordinary drama kind of unfolding around you. And it was a very odd trial. It wasn't, you know, the, there's a couple of uh, great barristers who were, who were uh, presenting the case for my client and they kept on turning around and saying, look, this never happens. This isn't a norm. Don't get used to this. You know, like the, the things that you see in courtrooms on TV never actually happen in courtrooms, you know, but it's all very rehearsed what happens in courtrooms you know defendants never break down on cross-examination go you're right you're right I did, I did. you know all of that happened in my in my trial you know it was like the kind of it was like if you if you'd have written it for tv that's how you would have written it wow. you know and they had to keep turning around and nudging me and going don't get used to this <laughs> enjoy this this is yeah. rare remember this remember that blow breaking down in the witness box <laughs> I wanted to ask about the, the, the... I was acquitted. I mean, I was just, just Oh, saying. well, you did a good... Well, we need to get that on the record. <laughs> Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I wanted to ask about the, the, the Blur Oasis rivalry and not, not necessarily to rehearse questions I'm sure you've been asked before, but did it teach you anything about politics in terms of opponents and the way you can see people from the other side and perhaps sometimes manufactured feuds that you end up in where actually you didn't want to be at war with each other at all? Um, it was not it. The, the music industry was very different back then. There were at least three uh, tabloid newspapers about pop music every week, and uh, a number of weekly magazines, and then thousands and thousands of monthly magazines, all desperate for something to write. And uh, so you had in order to get ahead you had to come up with headline worthy stuff you had to be doing things or saying things that uh, that generated headlines in these in these uh, in the music press and so you everyone was constantly encouraged to be uh to be outrageous it was kind of was like a rite of passage, you know, every band had to have a manifesto and it had to be ridiculous, you know, <laughs> outrageous. And you had to shout it from the, so, you know, my days as a Marxist, that kind of, uh, I was well fine. equipped. I was fine with that really. But, uh, you know, your, your engagement in the music industry had to be a political, you had to be doing it for political reasons, you know, and it, you had to be from the right kind of social strata that chimed well with these with these supposed political political motives and all of that in a way that pop music pop musicians don't have to do anymore because there's no you know that all of that pressure has kind of gone so it was against that backdrop that we were constantly slagging everybody off you know just constantly and it got headlines every week for doing so you know everybody's new record was crap they were all rubbish none of them knew how to write a tune their words were laughable and it obviously everything they were doing they were simply doing for attention you know so uh and most bands because we were quite loud mouthed most most bands kind of slunk off when attacked there wasn't there much to be gained from attacking back unless you're bloody good at it. And, uh, you know, at, in Oasis, we met our match. <laughs> <laughs> and more. They were, you know, when it came to kind of pithy headline-making put-downs, they were past masters. Because, you know, they were doing it to each other. They were honing their skills on each other every day. <laughs> and then unleashing on the unexpected... Uh, bands in the rest of the uh, in the rest of the ecosystem by night so you know they kicked back so that the music press absolutely loved that and there was some antipathy there that it, it turns out i found out much later it was due to an argument over a girl um i didn't even know that at the time i just knew it just all kicked off and the more it kicked off the more the press loved it so there was some antipathy and it did get, it did get kind of, you know, it did get quite, um, you know, there was sort of basis of a real sort of grudge underneath it, you know, and they did, I think, quite hate us. 
and we did quite loathe them me it was uh i my my uh wife at the time worked at their record company so i was gone all reasonably well with them but uh <laughs> but did you did you resent you know you're a marxist and then you were framed as the bourgeoisie in that in that um in that paradigm did you did you resent that it, it was a, an interesting that kind of uh, the blur oasis dichotomy was interesting because you you could you could read whatever your particular kind of foible was into that you know north versus south posh versus working class middle class working class kind of you know rock versus pop anything any kind of any kind of uh mod you know with a sort of war of of uh, two parties in modern life you could find some kind of parallel there so it was it, it was an absolute dream for uh for comment writers and you know people who were you know had 1500 words to fill you know they could and and you know in what you know architecture could today could write you know something about the <laughs> north versus south architecture you know or the architecture of the working class versus the architecture of the middle class you know and how the two have clashed and you know find a parallel there so um and it, the time the time was right you know it would, as with all of these things it's not it's nowhere near enough to be just good for the music to be just good you know you have to be extremely lucky and we we lucked upon that rich mine of uh, publicity generating drivel just at the, at the right time <laughs> and as i say you can't you can't fake that you know damon was quite they wouldn't say so i think he was quite hurt by some of the things they said and i think they were quite hurt by some of the things that he and alex said you know? that moment though when you when you win and country house is at number one i mean for i'm 38 for my generation it's, it was one of the biggest news stories of my life really particularly buying those records and and being the age i was at the time and all the other things that were happening at the time like new labor and euro 96 and all that it was a, it was a remarkable time i feel very lucky to have been the age that i was at, at that time and to have been able to enjoy that and been at school and hearing those songs on the radio that was one of the biggest cultural moments in in modern in modern history really blur getting to number one that top of the pops when it was revealed alex wearing the oasis t-shirt i can still see it so vividly i mean that must have been a euphoric moment i was just really relieved really. <laughs> it had increasingly over the course of that week dawned on me what what life was going to be like if we were to lose that sharp battle you know that was going to be miserable we were going to be forever labeled you know the posh boys that were kind of stomped on by the working classes you know everyone assumed by that point the story had built up to the point where you know we'd all been to eaton and places <laughs> had never even been to school you know they were kind of brought up in a plastic bag by their dad but down the coal mine you know and we were the david cameron on the steps of the bullingdon club you know, in our in our uh, tuxedos, spitting on them from a distance. You know, that was, the, that was how the, the story had. Uh, you know, we were all distantly related to the Queen, so uh, I just thought this could be an absolute disaster. So, uh, I mean, God knows how. God knows how. I mean, we, thank God we had the might of EMI behind us and their almost unlimited spending ability, because. <laughs> But they bought them all. 
don't know what they did. There are often conspiracy theories after election results. This isn't. Uh, maybe that was the first. Stop the count. <laughs> and they certainly invested an awful lot in our career. You know, I have to say. Did that treatment, by the way, of being framed as basically an Etonian and, and all that sort of nonsense, did that have an effect on your politics? Did it make you think, crikey, you know, I sometimes talk about Tories like this. It's not fair. I've been through this. Did it inform any sort of political outlook or thought? That make me re reevaluate my relationship with the Tories and have some sympathy for them, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Are you mad? <laughs> Mental. It's also a song about a bloke having a massive house in the country. It's a pretty Tory song in a way. <laughs> to be fair, I was the last member of Blur to get a very big house in the country. I held out as long as I possibly could. <laughs> well, I mean, it must be. So many people must joke about it. Like every friend that visits your country house. It must be such a boring joke for you to hear now. I love it. No, I laugh every time. I laugh along with them at myself every time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we at the time at that time, we were all young, arrogant young men who thought we knew everything. You know what I mean? And there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of eating your words in the history of Blur. I think, you know, the Park Life, the the song is about, you know looking down on joggers running around the park thinking they don't even know they're what the hell are they even doing what are they sitting on top of the hill like me smoking a fag you know what i mean yeah. they're running around and that of course it's us down there running around while the, the new generation sits on the hill smoking a fag <laughs> in disgust <laughs> but you think you know everything in your 20s don't you you think you think all the ideas you've just had are the most brilliant ideas and nobody's ever thought them before. Yeah. And they're so obviously right that anyone who doesn't agree with them is an idiot, you know, <laughs> or evil <laughs> must be eliminated. Um, yeah. but I, mean, I ask about the blur away thing, not just because of that experience, but because a few years ago I went to the teenage cancer trust gig where, uh, it was Noel Gallagher and Damon Albarn. And I had really hoped they were going to collaborate more and there was going to be, they were going to do Country House and and do Roll With It and have it as a kind of celebration of that rivalry. They collaborated on one song live, which was Tender, and Paul Weller played the drums. But even just that moment, for someone who'd lived through that, I mean, it felt like the Good Friday Agreement. It was like seeing John Hume and David Trimble hold hands. There was something so hopeful in seeing Damon Albarn and Noel Gallagher collaborate and then have this friendship. Yeah, well, it was all a long time ago, wasn't it? I mean, you know, the antipathy didn't really survive the the end of the music press and the both bands moving on. You know, both bands, not both bands, fans carried on that war forever to this day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, both bands found other things to do, and uh, um, you know, it, and I guess the who won that really depends on which point in time you you do the judging doesn't it it's like you know yes we won the we we sold the most singles that week but then oasis went on to be a stadium band and uh a much much bigger band than we've ever been you know and, and uh so but then they split up we never really split up kind of you know pick a point pick a point in time decide who the winner is 
but the I guess the what what is true is that the both of that's a real politician's thing to say, isn't it? What is true, what is true is I've been very clear, but uh, <laughs> let me say this. Look, <laughs> but the both it propelled that whole that whole episode propelled both of us to the to the bottom rung of the top ladder. We were both really struggling indie bands. Indie music was so unfashionable um, um, and, and until that changed things that we even, the indie music even had its own chart because it was so unlikely to make it into the main chart. You know, the idea that you could, that you could, uh, um, you know, make any money out of being an indie band was laughable. I remember there was a, there was a still remember it now at the a kind of joke joke piece in the melody maker about how you know the drummers from indie bands were buying strings of polo ponies if you've got it flaunt it i was i was <laughs> i was alleged to have said because the idea that the drummer in an indie band could make any money was just ridiculous you know and then oh pretty much overnight you know we we won all those brit awards and then the I don't even know what order things happened in, but you know, the Blur versus Oasis thing happened. We were on the front page of every single newspaper. We were the lead story on every news program on every channel for a week. You know, they had journalists standing outside record stores interviewing people, saying, "Which did you buy? Why?" Which you know, and it wasn't a slow news week. That was the other thing. There were actual, real newsworthy things happening in the world, but there were problems in the world. But, uh, you know, it's like COVID. It completely took over the nation's consciousness. So it didn't actually kill anyone, as far as I'm aware. But uh, um, kill some dreams and aspirations. But, uh, you obviously but, played some huge gigs in your time, not just headlining Glastonbury, but Hyde Park. And you headlined the Olympics in 2012. That was probably the last big party that the country had. I mean, England doing well in the World Cup, but we hosted the Olympics here. It was a huge deal. It's almost 10 years ago. The whole conversation on the left about Labour's relationship with patriotism and Keir Starmer getting attacked from some quarters for daring to film a video in front of the Union Jack. Why is the left, why, why do elements of the Labour Party struggle with a sense of Britishness? I mean, it, it seems to me that you're in a unique place to be able to have an opinion on this because you've been part of these patriotic movements, either, you know, whether through choice or not. But blur a national symbol that people liked. It doesn't seem hard to be able to say these are unifying things we can gather around, whether it's sport or music. Why does the left struggle with it? And do you struggle with it? Well, the, 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 I suppose there are several answers to that. First, the, the national symbols have been, have been co-opted by the right wing, by Nazis, neo-Nazis over the years. And so... Um, you know, flying a Union Jack in, in front of your house is likely to get you a brick through the window um, because, it, you know, people will assume. And that, that, that was that had been true all of my time growing up. You know, the National Front and the BNP were, it, were they'd co-opted all of the all of the British symbols. And uh, and uh, sort of uh, patriotism meant nationalism meant fascism. Um, briefly at you know at the time the the time of sort of cool britannia they, they were reclaimed by the masses and uh not only could you fly a union jack 
you were you were you didn't have to feel you were personally responsible for the atrocities committed during the empire you could uh, accept for a brief moment that somebody else had done that not you <laughs> and, uh, so you you could feel okay about being well about being english let's face it scottish people have always felt okay about being scots same with the welsh even the cornish fine with it the english <laughs> it? let's face it <laughs> to have that all of that self-loathing but uh i mean that's that's things as they always done as they always do have swung back again haven't they the far right's on the rise still i think um and kind of bigoted opinions can now be voiced in public for, for the sake of balance you know you're allowed to balance the truth with a lie you know, things are, we're in a, we're in a weird place now. And the, I have the, I, I was a big campaigner for net freedom. You know, I was an early adopter of the internet. I was very, I was very interested in the technology and I, I, I was a nerd, you know, I, I was wore glasses before it was fashionable. And, uh, I've always played with that, always understood it. We were the first band to have a website, you know, we, we in the UK, that is. We'd, um, and I was, when, when, it, when, the, the, it, when the net was growing, when the internet was growing, there was a number of campaigning organisations founded to try and make it a, a place where people could be free to express themselves and to, and uh, I, I thought, that was going to be okay because the overwhelming majority of people are brilliant and uh, so the few people who aren't brilliant would get drowned out by all the masses who were brilliant and so it was going to have a sort of built-in safety aspect a free internet would be a safe internet because everybody's because almost everybody is is great and they were going to push out the people who aren't great i was rather work wrong. out <laughs> I was rather wrong about that and i i it, it it I have seen now how those kind of assumptions are exactly how fascism takes hold, you know, and the the, the people who are who are horrible have uh, have uh, are able to snatch control from the people who are nice because they're horrible. The people who are nice wouldn't dream of doing all the things the people would have, are horrible would dream of doing. <laughs> And they certainly won't use their own tactics against them to fight them off. And, uh, and so the, the internet has been taken over by the horrible people. But it's also had an effect on music and, and, and bands and their ability to make a living. But I mean, the same is true, I think, in life. You know, the, those same assumptions, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, patriotism won't turn into nationalism is also true in life and i think i think we are right to be on guard against that i mean there's any personally i don't mean there's anything much to be gained from being patriotic Where, where's the plus side of this in anybody there's there's there was certainly plus a plus side in communist russia to 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 be because there was nothing else to work for to work for the greater good to work for mother mother russia you know to toil for mother russia down the mine was the, the only thing they could find to motivate people, you know, in this kind of weirdly, not particularly egalitarian, egalitarian society. 
Well, I guess what? people want to like where they live, don't they? And they want to feel positive about it. And they want to feel that the people who are seeking to govern it like it as well. Yes, but that's, for me, that's a different thing to patriotism. Patriotism is, I'm British and I'm proud to be British. Well, I'm certainly proud of some of my achievements, but that really ain't one of them. I would, you know, if I'd, my parents had gone on holiday that week, I'd have been French, you know. It's a purely accident of, of history and an accident of nature and an inability of my parents to think forward and to, to have me born in France rather than in England. In these Brexit times, that would have been very convenient. Well, unless you wanted the vaccine. Oh, yeah. Well, I still live here and get the vaccine, but, you know, having a couple of passports would have certainly sent me in good stead. So you don't think, because it's interesting, I thought perhaps you would, you would, you would be more, not inclined to patriotism, but perhaps see the value of some sense of common values and, and, and identity and, and in a progressive way. Yeah, but uh, no, I, I'm all about, you know, the part I'm, I'm a, with the party of the international aren't we yeah. the labor party i'm all about kind of uh, but what i'm not about is i'm british and i'm proud of that i'm proud of britain it's a wonderful place britain and it that i think that was the mistake people made in in reading what we what all of that stuff in the early blurred days was about it wasn't about being proud of being british it was about how you grow up knowing only one thing and you have to leave in order to see that kind of that in any in any kind of perspective and when we started to travel the world and especially when we did a very long american tour that we were forced into early in our career because uh, our first manager stole all our money um did he steal it to that an allegation i can learn maybe i should say allegedly maybe i should start couching that in the uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway certainly all the money all the money wasn't there and uh so we had to we had to rustle up some money and that involved doing this three-month american tour and uh by the end of that we were far enough away from home to be able to see what we liked about it and what we didn't and that's that's the kind of have that uh balanced view of where you come from i think is is not is is, uh, is not what patriotism implies and i think everybody should have that balanced view of, of where they come from and i think international travel is the key to that which makes anyway it's brexit more ludicrous <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so and and i you know having doing good stuff in your community that's why that's what i'm all about so i'm not saying i don't i don't want to have a nice community but is that patriotic don't you know what the definition? Let's actually look up the de definition. <laughs> no, T I. How do you do that to spell it? The definition. So you, the thing is, you've you've tried to stand for parliament before. You, you don't want to be saying stuff like this because if you do want to have a parliamentary career in in future, some opponent's going to say is going to find this clip and say you can't even spell patriotic. <laughs> national pride, patriotism, or national pride is the feeling of love devotion and sense of attachment to a homeland yeah yeah other citizens who same share the same sentiment so having read that maybe I've, overplayed, maybe I've attached the right wing right wing connotations yeah. to that aren't there then i think you have let's, let's dissect that do i have a feeling of love for britain that's probably taking it too far devotion to britain that's taking it too far especially these days fucking hell 
A sense of attachment, yes. Definitely have a sense of attachment here to a homeland. It is my homeland. An alliance with other citizens. Well, I actively worked to, uh, to, uh, to bring on an alliance with other citizens in my ward. Well, there you go. By extension, in my neighbourhood. So I, I'd say I, by that different I'm 50% patriotic. 52% perhaps. Yeah. So you, you, you've, you've had this period of time in politics as a, as a county councillor in, in Norfolk. You did try and get selected for Norwich South against um, Clive Lewis, who won yeah. that selection. So at some point, obviously, you, you were thinking, and you stood for uh, Westminster, as you say, in the cities of um, London and Westminster. Do you still have parliamentary ambitions? Yeah, maybe. I... I... It's a kind of place, I think, where you need to you need to go there with something to do rather than something to be. I don't, I've never met a successful politician who wanted to be a politician. Going, you need to have a sense of mission to go there, you know. And the 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 two time the two seats I've tried to get selected for, obviously the, the first one was a safe seat. And that's a kind of rite of passage for. Uh, for a wannabe politician, they they get you to sit in something you or stand in something you couldn't possibly win to start with to see that you don't hopelessly cock it up. You're allowed to cock it up, which is not absolutely hope you're not allowed to get arrested or anything like that. You know what I mean? It's kind of <laughs> you know, bring the party actively into disrepute in some way. You know, even if you don't deliver a leaflet, you're fine. You know, provided you don't completely trash the entire constituency. Um, but uh, the Westminster was an odd place. Similar to Norwich in that it, it was had some of the richest areas in the country, right alongside some of the poorest. And and in Westminster, that was really stark. I mean, I was shocked when I when I uh, started campaigning there. You know, the, the 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 kind of Dickensian levels of of poverty, because it's you know it's a, a Tory council. It's by definition a Tory council, and. Uh, and the last thing they care about is people who aren't going to vote Tory. You know, it was the, when I was uh, campaigning there, it was on the back of the votes, Homes for Votes scandal, where uh, the, the, the leader of the council was accused of gerrymandering, but of, uh, of uh, giving people council houses in exchange for them voting Tory. And, uh, my my ward, West End ward, was one of the wards she'd allegedly gerrymandered. Had, was she actually convicted of that? She was convicted of it, I think. And then, you know, despite being the Tesco heiress, claimed she didn't have a penny and was unable to pay the fine <laughs> for swanning off in a gold Rolls Royce to count her diamonds. <laughs> I haven't got a penny, Your Honour, I'm afraid. It's all tied up in Tesco's. <laughs> So yeah, my ward, West End ward, had been one of the few Labour wards, and then uh, all of the council houses had disappeared, and it was suddenly a Tory ward. And uh, you know the, the 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 difference in the spending between the Tory wards and the Labour wards was eye-watering, and the the difference in interest between the Tories and Labour in uh, promoting the welfare of the less well off in the in the area was also eye-watering 
it did mean that there were a million problems to solve. So it was quite good for a kind of budding campaigner. You, could, you know, if the, the estates are hidden away and especially the, the estates with real poverty and real um, issues, they're all hidden away in Westminster. You, you know, you don't, you'll never come across them unless you go looking for them. Um, but there are real terrible problems to solve, you know, and you can actually make a difference. And it was quite satisfying, you know, knocking on the door, having somebody saying, thank God, finally, somebody's turned up. Somebody's actually willing to, to do something. Thank God, you know, and you can, you know, where you can, you can actually help. You can actually look somebody in the eye and do something good for them. Turn and just little things. And the one I always, the one I always say that the, had the biggest impact on me was there was a a woman living on her own in a flat at the bottom of a tower block. The toilet on the top, or the water tank, I think actually it turned out to be on the top, had a had a had a problem with the the valve so it was always overflowing and there was a drip 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 down the overflow pipe which landed on her windowsill in her bedroom and this had been going on for years and it had driven her mad and she tried everything to get the council to come out and fix this bloody water tank but every night she went to sleep and it was just drip 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 you know and it was she was the look in her eyes and she showed me, and it was just such a simple thing to do. You know, it's just a, you know, I made a big fuss about it and uh, shamed the council into coming around and fixing this, and it just transformed her life. You know, a simple, but nobody had been willing to 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 pick to, to take it on. Nobody had been willing to actually do the small thing that was necessary to sort of transform her life. And it's something really, really um satisfying and being being the person that does that you know something really satisfying and i know a lot of mp friends who started out as councillors say they miss that because there's very little of that now being a, being an mp in those kind of ways is more like being a gp where you know you, your job is really to refer people to the right specialist if there's anything interesting comes in you know you only get to actually deal with the you know, giving out of aspirins and uh, and kind of bedside manner as a GP. And the duty comes in, you have to pass it on to somebody else. And that's kind of, I think, what it's like being an MP. You know, you're, the stuff that comes in, you're either passing on to the council or you're passing on to a minister or, and you're, you know, other than chasing things along and make, make sure they happen, you don't really get that one-on-one -on -one thing. So for, for you, when you're helping constituents like that or when you're standing for election in areas... Some people, I mean, there are millions of Blur fans in this country. Some people must open the door and go, I'm a fan, you're the drummer from Blur. I saw you at Glastonbury in 95 or wherever. They the must blow people's minds. Do, yeah, the first time they do it. My ward in, in uh, Norwich is, is where the university is. And so there's a whole bunch of university students, you know, new ones each term in these houses. So, yeah, you get that. <sighs> I thought you'd actually come round. <laughs> You know, because the these, the rumor circulates in the Freshers' Week. You know, Dave Rowntree will be your counsellor. No, he won't be my counsellor. of rubbish. No, and then you're knocking on the door. Hello, just so I'd introduce myself. <laughs> it's so cool. But do you get like Blur fans coming to your surgeries or emailing you at Norfolk County Council for stuff? Occasionally, yeah. But uh, you know, all of that, all that only happens once. And you know, what you. Uh, no, if the residents have got problems, they don't care who come, turns up. You know, if it's Liam 
or me they don't care you know to, to, it's 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 them that it's about it's not about me and the same was true when i was a lawyer you know people people would often say but well, don't your clients go hang on you're that bloke out of blur <laughs> and i'm the least famous one out of blur anyway so if it was damon that might be more of an issue has to be said but but uh, you know the clients don't care who I am. It's they want to know if they're going to get bail. You know, and that, it, it did turn out to be quite useful as a lawyer because the Essex Police, it turns out, are big Blur fans. So whenever I had a client in Essex in an Essex Police Station, they would roll out the red carpet for me. There you go, Mister Rad. <laughs> a cup of tea, Mister Rad. Yeah, how's your client? Has he got a really more comfortable chairs? Everything all right? <laughs> Do you ever get people asking you for autographs or stuff or emailing you at Norfolk County Council for signed photos? Do you have a pile of like Labour ones and Blur ones? <laughs> not, it, 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 it happens occasionally, but you know, people, people it's, it's not hard to get in touch with me, you know, in these days of Facebook and Twitter and everything, it's far easier ways of getting in touch with me than uh, writing a letter to Norfolk County Council. That's all kind of, that's what, without, what they would have done in the 90s, I accept, but... Uh, I'm sure we must have got fan mail. I mean, in the very early days, they used to, our manager used to bring a box of fan mail every Friday to rehearsals. And uh, we used to go through it. And then he stopped bringing the boxes. Well, they can't, people kind of stopped writing. What happened to all that fan mail? <laughs> just go unanswered, go in the bin. I feel quite guilty about that. I, don't know, I genuinely don't know. If you wrote to us in the 90s and didn't get a reply, I'd be sorry about that. I just have no idea what happened to all the letters. Oh, where they would have gone. Has an opponent ever weaponized it against you and said, oh, you know, these rock and roll stars going into politics or, you know, this guy stopped Oasis from being number one. <laughs> Don't vote for him. Only opponents in the Labour Party. <laughs> of course. <laughs> He's not serious. He's not serious. Have you ever had to put up with that, though? Have you had, you know, when you're going for parliamentary selections? Yeah, that's the standard, you know. That's the standard attack line. But, you know, it's, it's hard to do that against me because I clearly am serious. You know, I clear, I've been, you know, I, right from the off. I have to say, it came away from my first meeting as chair of my branch, you know. <laughs> I've, I've been there. I've been there. I've done it. You know, and I've held lots of constituency posts and things. And, you know, I've done, I've done, I've paid my dues. It's not like I've I, any, asked anyone ever to parachute me in in any aspect of my life, you know. I no, and you've been standing for Labour during the hardest time to get elected. And perhaps with Keir Starmer, things might get a bit easier at the next election. So you, you're, you're kind of, you're leaving elected Labour politics at a time when Labour are perhaps going to start doing a bit better. Well, I, let's see what happens with this election. I, the Tories are riding high in the polls at the moment. I mean, they... Only the good news sticks with the Tories, doesn't it? They're, you can have, you know, they can cock everything up kind of for, for a, an entire year. And then suddenly they do something, you know, not suffer at all in the polls. And then suddenly they manage to stay hands off enough to allow the NHS to actually inoculate the country against this virus. And they take the credit for it. And they suddenly launch ahead in the polls. I mean, you, 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 get, you get plus points for for deciding not to interfere. I don't get it. It's just crazy. I guess it's just the public go, oh, that's good. <laughs> I think it's, sometimes it's straightforward. But the political fallout will follow, won't it? And that, that's what's going to be interesting, is at the moment I think people are just getting through it. There will be a political reckoning of, of sorts 
once yeah. perhaps life returns to normal. And Keir Starmer I'm, seems to be polling a bit better than Jeremy Corbyn was. There seems to be, you know, the public seem warmer to Starmer than they did to him. It, not inconceivable that Labour might make gains at the next election. So if you could yeah. stand anywhere, would, would you stand in Norfolk or would you would you try elsewhere? Oh, I don't know. But who knows? You know, there's no vacancy in Norfolk. So uh, great politician's answer. <laughs> and what's more likely, a, a new Blur album and tour or Labour forming a government at the next election? <laughs> well, I, I think a, a new Labour, a new, uh, a new Labour. Sorry, I just let the cat out of the bag there. An old Labour. No, hang on. A new Blur album. And tour, I think it's a, a, a definite. So uh, the question there, from, from my view, and you ask other people, they may say some, something different. But from my view, um, it's a question of when rather than if. They're, they're definitely, there's de the willingness is definitely there. There's just the, you know, the opportunity. But um, will Labour? I mean, there. I was, I was musing on how many Labour leaders there have been, rather than how many Labour leaders have been Prime Minister. And the ratio ain't good, is it? No, it's terrible. I mean, only only one Labour leader's won any election since 1974. Yeah, and up, even before that, only three others, I think, won a general election. Yeah. Twice. Uh, so, really, you have to be, you know, you have to be so much better a Labour leader than the Tories have to be a Tory leader in order to be Prime Minister. So maybe so, um, let's say a new Blur album and, and Blur to headline the next Labour Live. <laughs> Did you go to Labour Live? Did you play Labour Live? I didn't know. I don't think I was. Um, I don't think I'd have been particularly welcome at Labour Live back then. Were you asked? No. Well, it's incredible. They got a rock and roll star as an elected, you know, politician, and they didn't ask you. Yeah, but you know what it's like. When people get any kind of power in the Labour Party, immediately they close ranks. It's not like anyone has ever looked around, gone, who else can we invite into this thing that we've got going on here? Nobody else that might make this interest. No, it's immediately, I want all this for myself. Yeah. It's a big tent, but the sides are bolted shut. You are not allowed in. And I'm sure... That's true of all political parties. I'm absolutely sure, I'm sure that's true. So no, nobody has ever. And you know, I've I when we were actually remember we were actually in government once. I did actually say, if you if you ever want a hand with this music industry stuff, come and see me. You know. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, never. Oh my god! Oh, that is <laughs> terrible to know. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> But uh, that's the nature of the beast, and I think that will always be the nature of the beast. You have to, uh, you have to force your way in, and uh, once you force your way in, you have to close ranks behind you. You have to slam the door behind you. <laughs> well, I'm now going to slam the door on this podcast because I've I've kept you for a lot longer than I promised I would, and we could have carried on talking for another hour and a half. Um, but for now, Dave Roundtree, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, Dave Roundtree. And of course, I don't think he and I are the only two that would agree that going to number 10 to meet the Prime Minister, particularly if you're going to interview them and put it on YouTube, would be the happiest or most exciting day of your life. 
Of course, it's just funny that he says it because he's, he's had so many exciting days in his life, including numerous headline slots at Glastonbury. That famous chart war with Oasis that, that Blur won uh, when Country House beat roll with it to number one. And some of the other things that go with being in one of the biggest bands of all time. So um, there's something really <laughs> reassuring that in rock and roll bands right around the world right now, There'll be members of them agitating to get elected um, to Parliament. But if that fails, um, then to a local council to make the world a better place. And isn't that... It's just a really important reminder, maybe a life lesson, that you can watch people on the telly. And I'm not just talking about politicians now, footballers. Marcus Rashford's a really good example of this. And you kind of imagine how they are, um, even if you imagine them positively. And you sort of project this life onto them. Now, of course, they do have amazing lives and they recognise that. But they also do care about other people and what happens in the world and in their community. And they have a platform and often then the time to really do something about it. And I just think it's so brilliant to know that you can have a career, the sort of which Dave has had, and still want to do something more, something different. There's part of him that rock and roll... And all the things that go with that, predominantly, I mean by that, not the material element, but the satisfaction, the creative satisfaction of making something that so many people are going to listen to and enjoy and then getting to perform that in so many great places, so many wonderful countries around the world. But there's still that element, and I think people who are drawn to politics have that. It's like an itch in the small of your back that you can't get rid of, that is just it's persistent. And I think that's something that unites all of us who like politics, whatever wing of politics you're on, and whatever degree to which you're involved. Now, you may be listening to this as a cabinet minister or uh, someone who works in number 10 or parliament or a member of parliament. This might be the only political engagement you have. This might be this one podcast, and people do get in touch and say, this is the only political podcast I listen to, and it's the way I consume politics is through this, in which case that is a great compliment. Um, but all of us, in, on that ladder, whatever rung you are on in terms of your involvement, however deep you've gone into this world, it's because there's part of you that thinks the world needs to change and this is the best way to do it. And um, how great that um, people from all different walks of life come into politics and what a great novelty to be able to talk to Dave about having had that 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 life and whether or not i mean to be honest obviously i really wanted to ask him about the blur oasis stuff obviously so then try to kind of talk about it in a political way i think some of those theories are fairly sound that if blur were framed as the bourgeoisie and david been a teenage marxist then maybe that gave him an insight into you know a different treatment of people and, and the way that uh, perhaps some um, uh, angry young socialists might denounce the Tory party um, but it was perhaps a bit of a stretch but I c you can't interview Dave Rowntree and not ask about Blur and, and Britpop and Glastonbury and all those other wonderful things as well as the politics and he's clearly really talented so it, 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 what's really interesting about politics is obviously it can take a while to get in there and standing in unwinnable seats and then being a county councillor, obviously then COVID happens, that changes a lot of things for a lot of people and their likelihood or not of uh, staying or going into politics. Um, 
But that road, you know, people might go, well, he's the drummer from Blur, so they're going to sort him out. He'll be straight in there. But it's not always as straightforward as that. It's still really difficult to get elected. It still takes a heck of a lot to get elected, even in a safe seat, because you've got to go through these selection processes. It's really difficult to become a member of parliament. Um, but it would be great if Dave ends up in there because he has a great approach to life, uh, a, an experience that very few people have that he can bring to bear. And of course, just that desire to sort people's problems out. That is, the, in the end, what politics is really for. Um, so just, <laughs> I guess it's just the surreal thing of this rock and roll star helping someone out with their the drip on their windowsill. But that would have drive, that would have driven me mad as well, so I'm so glad he uh, sorted it out. But what a brilliant guest. That was a real treat. Um, any thoughts or feedback, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for downloading it. As always, tell your friends, tell your family, tell strangers. I was going to say tell people in the street. That is not wise at the moment. Um, maybe just put a sign in your window saying download to the Political Party Podcast. Um, if you do do that... <laughs> Tweet is a picture of it, at Matt Ford. And, um, yeah, <laughs> somehow I can't see that catching on. It wasn't a serious suggestion. But the one thing you can do, of course, and I would never stop asking, is to nip into the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. And um, that can be your that can be your political activism for this week. I'll see you next week. ta Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.